Thanks, you guys. This has been so fun. Uh, good. Um, yeah, so yeah, actually, you, cheater, you knew. <laughs> no, she asked me if, uh, you could ask, yeah, my, um, yeah, my mother is Mexican, my father is Irish. Only one person has ever actually guessed that from first, first class, but it was someone who knew, like, their dad was a geneticist or something, they knew, like, your curl is like an Irish curl and your nose is, anyway, they were able to tell from that, which was crazy. <clears throat> okay, yeah, so our third and final session, and then we'll have Q&A afterwards. I uh, hope you all enjoyed lunch. I'd like to start. Years ago, I had this uh, vision, this image, and I saw uh, this artist, and this artist was painting this grand masterpiece. So you can envision like the big gold embroidered frame, and uh, they began uh, taking their paint and throwing themselves into this masterpiece with, with passion and color and vibrancy and life until uh, they, they kind of finish. Here, I'll move the painting over here. You know, so they kind of, they finish, and when it was done, it was just glorious and majestic, and they stood back as if to say, like, oh, this is good. Like, this is really good. Only next, something strange appeared. Right at the center in the heart of the painting, uh, there was kind of this darkness, like this mold, a decay-like feature that appeared. This corruption at the center of the painting. It's like, oh, what's that? And gradually it began to spread out from the center, working its way like these fractures and fissures and fragments, like tentacles kind of reaching and crawling their way out throughout the masterpiece. And I saw, oh, this... Majestic, this painting is threatened with destruction. Like, what is the artist going to do? How are they going to respond? And the artist responded with the craziest, kind of most out-of-this-world thing I could have ever imagined. The artist walked up to the painting, lifted their leg, and he stepped inside the painting, merging his life with the fabric and canvas of his creation. And as he did, he stepped in in such a way that his own heart was placed at the center where the corruption and the decay had come in. And gradually this decay began to almost work its way back, the tentacles, as if they were attacking the artist at the center of the painting. And he took and sort of absorbed the blows of, you know, until, like he received it all into himself and it was gone. And at the end... Something that also shocked was he didn't step back out of the painting. All right, work's done. I'm going to step back out. But rather remained at the center of this masterpiece restored. And there was a sense that this was the way it was always intended to be, the artist at the center of their painting. And I, I see this as somewhat a metaphor for the gospel well, the gospel itself, right? This is a picture of the God who in Christ, really from before the foundation of the world, Jesus is the one through whom all creation has been brought into existence. The word through whom all things were made. Uh, that Jesus is the very one in and through whom we have our existence, our being. He is the grand artist who together with the Father and the Spirit and the Son, they bring all creation into existence. And God that looks, the triune God looks upon the masterpiece of his creation in Genesis. It is good. It is very good. Only then we see in the story that this sin, this corruption, this decay enters his creation and threatens it with destruction. And yet God's ultimate response 
It's not to trash the painting, but it's actually to step into it. We see in the incarnation, Jesus unites his life with the canvas of his creation, the very fabric of our humanity and existence. He steps into the world that he has made, takes on flesh and bone. And in the cross, we see this picture where God takes upon himself in Christ, in Christ's humanity, the destruction that we've unleashed. And in his resurrection, he is exalted and stands now at the center of all creation, exalted at the right hand of God in his throne, and the center through which all creation is restored in and through him. That Jesus doesn't step back out of the painting, but actually his permanently, he lives with a resurrected, glorified body now forever as the center of creation restored. I want to use that as kind of a picture and inroad into the narrative, the story of the gospel. We've been talking kind of about future stuff with questions around heaven and earth and hell. We're talking about past stuff, looking at Old Testament and Holy War and all. But now looking at the center, the center of the story is Christ himself and the gospel. And the question, if there's one question I kind of want to front load this final session around, it would be um, this, kind of centered around the cross of Christ and going, is the cross uh, divine child abuse? Uh, This is a critique that some have raised in recent decades. Uh, It's really kind of a more recent critique, it seems, in the history of the church, but this critique of going uh, at the cross, some traditional understandings of of atonement or what's happening, the work of Christ on the cross. Um, There are some today who would say, like, those traditional understandings, that makes God look like kind of like this abusive father who's kind of knocking the snot out of his son, kind of punching his son in the face sort of thing. And, um, and so in reaction against that, you have some who have uh, increasingly prominently rejected themes like sacrifice or wrath being at work in the cross. And I think it raises the question of how do we understand themes like sacrifice and wrath, or should we even in relation to the cross? And I would suggest one of the best ways we can understand what's happening at the cross when it comes to atonement around these themes is if we zoom out and we place the cross within the story of Christ and the Gospels as a whole. What's happening in the Gospels, the life of Jesus? What is he doing? What is he about? Uh, And so uh, if you think, like the last session, we leave this session in two halves, right? First half, I want to look at this theme of Jesus and his life and what he's doing, what he's accomplishing, and then the second half will focus more specifically on the cross, and I think that can help us frame what's happening at the cross in a way where we see the beauty of God in the midst of themes like sacrifice and wrath and all. So this this first half, uh, I want to introduce us to uh, what for some might be a new idea, but in the early church, this was a prominent way of understanding the life and the work of Christ, uh, was the word recapitulation. We'll talk a little more soon about what that means. The basic idea is that Jesus is reliving Israel's story. That Jesus in in the Gospels is depicted and presented as he is reliving the story of Israel. And not only that, he is reliving the story of Adam. And he is reliving our story. Only he is succeeding where we fail in order to bring life to the world. And so this first half, I want to take a look at how is Jesus reliving, in particular, Israel's story, as well as our story, and and what does it mean that he's doing that redemptively? Well, if we start with uh, incarnation, right? Uh, The incarnation, and that this is 
the artist stepping into his masterpiece. And we think of Mark open today talking about the significance of having the biblical story in view and how it contrasts some of the other stories. And what we see at the beginning of the biblical story is the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, the kind of chaotic waters, and the, the nothingness, the darkness, the void, the deep, and speaking his word, his creation into existence through his word. Later in the story, we see Abraham and Sarah, and they've been given this promise that they're going to be a great nation, but they, they, they're unable to have kids. And so, and once again, we see the Spirit of God, you imagine, like over uh, Sarah's womb, and, and God brings life into existence. Isaac, the child of the promise. And now, if you have that story, that imagery in the backdrop, we read in the Gospels, the Spirit hovering over Mary's womb, like the Spirit hovering over the waters hovering over a, a nation and a people who are in exile, in a place of death, in a place of distance, in a place of chaos. And the Spirit hovers over the womb of Mary, and the Father speaks, and Christ is born. He comes into existence. He is formed in the womb. He is reliving Israel's story as the Word who has spoken to bring new life into creation. And early on in Jesus' story, the Gospels emphasize not only this hovering of the Spirit and this bringing of the, his identity as the Word, the, the new creation voice of God, but also that soon after he goes into exile in Egypt, that uh, there is the uh, attempted Herod murdering the babies like Pharaoh had murdered Jewish children so long ago, and they are forced to flee and they head into Egypt. And the Gospels see this as uh, Jesus is reliving. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And now out of Egypt, Jesus eventually comes back. And when Jesus comes back from Egypt, one of the very next things we see in the Gospels is that he is baptized in the Jordan. Similar to how Israel in the Old Testament came out of Egypt. And the way they came out of Egypt was they were baptized through the Red Sea. They saw the parting of the waters coming in and out. And out of Egypt, God called his son. Israel. Now out of Egypt, God calls his son, Christ, through the waters of baptism. And after Jesus was baptized, he came up from out of the waters. Can anyone uh, remember where he goes next? Into the wilderness for 40 days, right? Like Israel in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, side note here, so the Gospels are depicting this early part of the story of Jesus as a reliving of Israel's story. The creative word spoken to existence through the Spirit that goes into Egypt and then kind of the, as the promised son and comes out through the waters and into the wilderness. And so now let's move to this next uh, section, uh, stage of Jesus' life, in the wilderness temptation. And um, this is significant. We read in the Gospels that uh, for... For 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus fasted. Um, I mean, I lost the scripture here. Let me pull it up. Luke 4. And Jesus, uh, Luke 4, verse 1. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, uh, returned from the Jordan, where he was baptized, and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Uh, he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. Right? 
some of the most obvious words ever spoken in scripture. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry, right? Like, uh, it's like saying he went swimming and after he was wet, right? Like, obviously, and yet it's saying something significant that Jesus participates in the fullness of our humanity. He experiences our frailty, our hunger, right? Uh, but more so, it's interesting that Jesus, uh, he spends 40 days in the wilderness. Can anyone think of any Old Testament stories that this sounds familiar with? Yeah. Israel's temptation in the wilderness. It says Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted or to be tested. And this is echoing Deuteronomy 8.2, where Moses tells Israel uh, of their time in the wilderness. He says, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Um, the reason that God led Israel in the wilderness, it says here, is in order to know what was in your heart. And echoing this, now Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tested like Israel was, and that part of the purpose is that we would know what is in his heart. Right? We're going to find out what's in his heart in the wilderness. And um, Satan tempts Jesus three times. I want to spend a little time here in this wilderness scene because it, it, I think it helps set up this theme we're talking about, uh, Jesus reliving Israel's story. Uh, Jesus is tempted three times. Uh, can anyone remember, what's, how does Jesus respond? What's common to how he responds all three times? All right, he quotes scripture, right? He quotes scripture. Now, uh, sometimes I've heard this talked about as like Jesus is teaching us how we can beat temptation, how we can fight temptation, right? So Jesus was tempted. He quoted scripture. So when we get tempted, we should quote scripture too, right? And maybe kind of, like, I mean, I, that, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's good to know our Bible and the, you know, scripture. But I think there's actually something more going on here. Does anyone know all three scriptures that Jesus quote come from one particular book of the Bible? Anyone know which book of the Bible it comes from? Deuteronomy. So all three times he's responding from Deuteronomy, and particularly Deuteronomy 8 and 6, and all three times he's referencing a temptation that Israel failed in the wilderness, that he's now succeeding. Right? So the first temptation where Satan's like, hey, turn these stones to bread, um, and this comes, and uh, Jesus responds, saying, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the context for this, back in Deuteronomy 8, it's from Deuteronomy 8.3, uh, and this is from Israel's in the wilderness where they uh, had no food. And they were like, God, take it, Moses, take us back to Egypt. You brought us out here in the wilderness to die. At the first sign of trouble, they broke trust with God. God, we don't trust you. You're not with us. You're not for us. And God ends up, you know, pro he's providing manna, but it reveals what was in their heart. They didn't trust God. And Deuteronomy 8.3 that Jesus cites here, the bigger context, Moses says, God humbled you in the wilderness, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So Jesus draws Israel's temptation back into the picture as he quotes this. And basically, he's getting an A plus on the test that she flunked, right? Like Israel failed this test in the wilderness. Jesus is succeeding this test. He trusts his father to provide for him in the same place that Israel did not. The second temptation, uh, Satan, hey, throw yourself down from the temple. And Jesus says, uh, do not put the Lord your God to your test, to the test. Um, here, <clears throat> there's a sense of Satan like, hey, he twists the words of a psalm of scripture going, um, 
go up to the temple, throw yourself off the highest place, make a big spectacle. Everyone will see how great you are and know that you're God's son. And Jesus says, um, do not put the Lord your God to the test. The full quote, and he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 16, says, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. And Massa, but this was the place where Israel had no water to drink. And once again, they just received manna. It's like, God, you have abandoned us. You failed us. Again, we don't, we don't trust you. Take us back to Egypt. At least there we had good stuff to eat and whatever else. And God ends up providing water from the rock at Massa. And so once again, Jesus is succeeding where Israel failed. The third temptation, bow down to me, it says, um, and I'll give you the kingdoms of the world. Jesus is supposed to get the kingdoms of the world, but he's going to get them through the cross, not through bowing to the enemy. Right? And Jesus responds, quoting Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, saying, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And the context of this verse was Moses confronting the people how in the wilderness they had bowed down to the golden calf and made these idols and other things that they had given themselves to when they were made to worship God only. So what's the point, big picture here? I, I think it's, it's, it's the big picture we should have here is that Jesus is reliving Israel's temptation in the wilderness, and he is succeeding the three major tests that she failed. Jesus is succeeding where his people, Jesus is Jewish, he's Israel. He is reliving his people's story and succeeding where they failed. And not only that, this is also echoing Adam and Eve's temptation in the garden. They were also tempted with food, with the twisting of God's words, and with the call to implicitly bow to the serpent. Jesus succeeds where Adam and Eve fail. And Jesus is succeeding where we fail. We are so prone to break trust with God at the first sign of trouble, to give our lives to other things, to use our privilege to avoid pain, to avoid uh, the hard call that God has in our lives in, in order to just pursue pleasure rather than obedience. And so Jesus, we see here, he is reliving Israel's story, he's reliving Adam's story, and he's reliving our story, and he's succeeding where we all fail. The big picture we should have in the wilderness, Jesus is not teaching us like a how to be temptation 101 seminar, right? The point is not so much he did it, you can do. The bigger point is we don't do it, and so he's doing it on our behalf, right? He's more than just an exemplar, he's a savior. He's actually living our story redemptively to redeem us, bearing the full weight of our humanity to redeem us. Jesus, <clears throat> Jesus is true humanity, right? Jesus is showing us what true humanity looks like. And I think this helps frame kind of a, a, kind of a loaded theological question historically. is like, could Jesus have sinned? Like, could Jesus have, have, have sinned? And I think the idea historically would be there's this doctrine called impeccability that Jesus could not have sinned. But the way to best understand that is, like, I think it depends on what we mean by the question. If we mean, uh, could Jesus have sinned, meaning did he truly have the opportunity to sin? Like, yes, from the outside in, so to speak, like, the opportunity was truly there. Jesus truly felt hungry, truly felt the full force and weight of our humanity, and truly there was the freedom of an opportunity presented before him to bail. So from the outside in, I think the logic is sort of to say, yeah, Jesus could have sinned in the sense that he had the opportunity fully to. But if we're talking about from the inside out, would Jesus have sinned? And here the answer is no. 
Like Jesus would not have sinned, not because something was forcing him. He was forced by his father or forced by fate or forced by whatever. Uh, he would not have sinned because from the inside out, he loves the father more than anything else because his affections remain uncorrupted by sin. Because he loves God and he loves us fully with no corrupted taint of sin that would propel him in some other direction. And so we can say fully that Jesus could have sinned and that the opportunity was there, but he would not have sinned. He would never have sinned because of his holy affection for the Father and for us. So Jesus could not have sinned in that sense, not because of something forcing him on the outside, but because of who he is on the inside. This test reveals what's in his heart, and he is fully... <clears throat> he is fully without sin in his heart. This can raise the question, though, is this fair? Like, does he just have some kind of superhuman advantage? Like, uh, it's kind of like, okay, well, Jesus is like that baseball player, like, on, on steroids or something. Right? You know, of course, he's going to hit it out of the park. He's got the superhuman advantage. He's divine. He's, uh, but the idea here, it's not because of Jesus' divinity that he's unable to sin. It's actually because of his uncorrupted humanity. That Jesus is less like a baseball player on steroids and more like a baseball player who never ate Twinkies, right? Or I don't know if you have Twinkies here or like maybe Tim Tams or something. I don't know. Like, but Jesus, it's not because he has the superhuman advantage, but it's because he doesn't participate in the inhumanity that we all participate in. It's not a, an addition of superhumanity. It's a refusal to add inhumanity. Right? Uh, Jesus is more fully human than we are. And I think one of the challenges that we have is that we often think of sin as something that is just kind of an implicit part of our humanity. Like, well, to err is human, we all make mistakes. But we're not talking about like making an honest mistake. We're talking here about willful rebellion, sin, and Jesus doesn't have it. That actually makes him more fully human. Right? Jesus is true humanity because the nature of sin is to degrade and tear at the fabric of our humanity, to actually try and pull us down into something less than fully human. Well, because of this, I think we see uh, a, a powerful picture of what's happening in the kingdom era of Jesus' ministry. Like Jesus comes out of the wilderness, and then he steps into the promised land. And now we move into the next era of Israel's story, which is really the holy war type stuff we were just looking at. And we see now Jesus, who was tested in the wilderness and revealed to be fully in his heart for God, for humanity. He steps into the promised land and he is healing the sick and casting out demons and reclaiming God's kingdom come on earth as in heaven. This is a picture of Israel entering Canaan, entering the promised land and driving out evil, driving out wickedness, and reclaiming the garden of God's promised land for the, the holy indwelling presence of God. Jesus' life and ministry, sometimes we jump straight from like his birth to his death, and we leave out like the significance of like his three years of, of, of ministry and all in his life on earth. And what we see here is Jesus is living the kingdom era of Israel's story, establishing the presence of God in the land, driving out e evil, and wickedness and reclaiming the land for God and his glory. Matthew 4.23 says, Jesus' ministry was proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. Uh, this is a picture of the artist restoring the painting. Right? The artist steps in and is 
taking those areas of decay and corruption and bringing color and life back into them. Uh, it's like a picture of grass growing up again in the desert again. John tells us that uh, we, we record, he's like, I've recorded these stories, Jesus' miracles and all, but if we were to record them all, there wouldn't be enough room in the libraries of the world. There's not enough paper and books in the world. It's this picture of <clears throat> Jesus is unleashing the love of God into his broken and fragmented masterpiece, his creation, restoring and redeeming it. And ironically, <clears throat> this is the calling that Adam had, that Israel had, that we have. That Israel was called to redemptively reclaim God's kingdom presence in the earth. Adam was called to co-reign with God and, and rule with God. Adam and Eve to be his vice regents who helped establish God's kingdom. We are called to be redemptive agents of God's kingdom presence into our world. And sometimes I wonder if one of the reasons that we see less kingdom power today is actually the absence of holiness at times, right? You know, like you see the, sure, Jesus's um, holy, fully human obedience in the wilderness is the precedent that unleashes the kingdom power of God in and through his life when he steps into the land. And I wonder sometimes how much the, the sin in our lives or the areas that we refuse to kind of give over and, and, and bend the knee to Jesus in are almost like the impediments that can block the kingdom power of God's spirit, his presence like breaking forth in fresh new ways in and around us in our world. <clears throat> All right, well, <clears throat> Jesus is becoming what Adam, what Israel were intended to be. Uh, this is where that phrase recapitulation comes in. It's an early church word for kind of understanding Jesus' life and ministry, his work. And it literally comes from, it means new head, like new heading, recapitulation from recapito. And so if you think of... Uh, it means like he is new heading creation. So we, uh, that word capito, it's the same root we get our word captain from. And so just picture Jesus is becoming the new captain of the ship, the new head of humanity, the new one through whom like God had intended Adam as the captain of the ship and then Israel as the captain of the ship, like to restore and establish his kingdom in the world. And we botched it up. And so now there's a sense of God going, all right, I'll step in and do it myself. You know, and now in Christ, he takes our humanity to himself, and he is riding the ship. He is becoming the new captain of creation, the head of humanity. And he's reversing the curse. And I love the picture here. We see that we can't get Jesus dirty. He can only make us clean, right? Like, I love that picture where the woman uh, who'd been bleeding for 12 years, and she reaches out, and she touches and grabs hold of the hem of his garment. And normally, you would expect her disease, her impurity, her all these things that she is bringing like to, to taint and get him dirty, but it doesn't. It works the opposite way. Instead, this is in Mark 5, Jesus, instead of getting his, her impurity on him, he transfers his purity to her. That Jesus is spreading the holiness, the power, the presence of God everywhere he goes, living our fully human calling establish the kingdom presence of God in the world, in a world of sin and brokenness and destruction. <clears throat> okay, so Jesus is more than an example to be followed. He's a savior to be trusted. And this brings us then to the next season of Christ's story. So just kind of stop here for a second. So what we're trying to say here, what I'm trying to say is that uh, the way the Gospels depict Jesus best way, I think one of the reasons we can misread it is, like Mark was saying earlier, we've got to place the story of Jesus within the story of Scripture as a whole. 
And when we do, what we see is that Jesus is reliving the story successfully where the people of God, including ourselves, continually botch it up, but Jesus is doing it successfully. He's living the, um, the Abraham and the patriarch season of the story. He's living the Egypt and then in, out into the wilderness, baptism into the wilderness part of the story. He's living the kingdom era. And yet, when we get to the end of this part of Israel's story, out of the kingdom, uh, anyone know what, what's the final era of Israel's story after the kingdom era, uh, coming out of the prophets and, and that all? What's the, what's the final season in the Old Testament of Israel's story? What's that? A little louder? Exile. Great. Yes. Oh, I forgot kingdom. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, the kingdom era of the story, and after kingdom comes exile, right? <laughs> Far from home. <laughs> so the picture of exile is being uh, you know, far from the home that you were made for, with that longing to return, to be able to go back and get back to that place that you were from. And so when we get to the cross and questions of atonement, I think one angle that can be really helpful is by seeing that Jesus at the cross is living the exile era of Israel's story. Jesus bears Israel's exile and death as the people of God. He bears Adam, and he bears our exile and death as the people of God. Um, so when we think about atonement, what atonement means, it actually literally comes from kind of the root of like at one like sacrifice and what's happening in order to take two things that have been ruptured or separated or pulled apart and bring them back together and make them one again. And so historically, atonement uh, has to do with what is happening at the cross. How is Christ making God and humanity one again, heaven and earth, reconciling creation? How is God making all these things that have been ruptured and torn apart and making them one? And when I think of atonement and the work of Christ on the cross, I like to think of it as like a diamond, right? Like there are many angles to look at and explore the work of the cross. And uh, some of those have been called like Christus Victor, Christ's victory over the powers of sin, death, and the devil. Uh, some of them have been called ransom, Christ kind of being ransomed in our place against the enemy. Uh, there are, some have counted as many like as nine or even a dozen sort of different theories on the atonement. Um, and I, I'm more of a both-end guy. I think a, a lot or maybe even all like have important things to kind of teach us. Uh, but one of the most controversial today um, is one, uh, sometimes you might hear, is called penal substitution, the idea that Christ bore the punishment that was ours to bear on the cross in our place. And because that's one of the ones that's more difficult for a lot of people, it's one of the ones I want to try and look at now in the second half to try and give us some angles on how Jesus reliving the, the story of the scriptures can help give us a hook into seeing what's going on uh, with this that I think we see driven by the love of God for our world. So the first question, you know, penal substitution, atonement, PSA, whatever, the first question I think to ask is, well, what is the penalty, right? Uh, we're talking about a penalty, the sort of penal side of it. Um, what is the penalty? Because if you're playing different games, the penalty looks different. Like if you're playing soccer, the penalty in soccer or football looks different than if you're playing bingo, let's say, or boxing, right? And what is this game that the story of scripture is playing? And what is the penalty in that story? Because sometimes at the cross, I think the caricature is this picture that like um, the father is sort of punching the son in the face or something just sort of like vindictive like that. Uh, and yet what we see in the biblical story is that the penalty of sin is exile and death. 
The penalty of sin is exile, it's distance from the life-giving presence of God, and ultimately it culminates in death. We see this in the beginning with Adam and Eve, that when they uh, eat of the tree and they rebel against God, uh, the first part of the punishment is exile, right? They're driven out from the garden. And the second part of the penalty is death, that ultimately this exile from the garden is the driven out. It's on a trajectory. There's almost a spiritual death at the moment of that distance from God, but it's on a trajectory that will ultimately lead to physical death. We see this theme in Israel's story as well, that uh, as Israel rebels against God, I, I think Adam and Eve's story is like it's, it's a foreshadowing, it's a prototype of what will happen to Israel as well. That when they rebel against God, that they are driven out of the garden, they are driven out of the promised land into exile. And that ultimately that exile leads to a place of death. It's the famous passage of the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 36. And uh, the prophet sees this valley of dry bones, those who have been butchered by Babylon, the powerhouse of the day. And that picture, it was a sign of Israel and exile. It was a place of both um, metaphorical death, they were distant from the land, distant from life with God, and actual death. The, the people had, were dying in a land of captivity and had been uh, massacred and killed, many of the people in the process of being driven out. So, so this is a picture of metaphorical and literal <clears throat> distance from God. And the reality is that for you and I, um, we experience both of these as well, right? We, experience, we live in a world where we experience distance from God. Like, as great as Melbourne, Melbourne is, like I've loved it here the last few days, as great as Portland, where I'm from, is, you know, and there's so many, like I feel like Portland and Melbourne are some of the probably the most uh, prized cities on the face of the earth today where people want to live there, and it's so, you know, and, and there is, there's great coffee and good food and amazing culture and all these exciting, you know, wonderful, good things, and those are good, and those are fine, should be celebrated. And yet, even there, and sometimes especially there, we find ourselves distant from God, even in a place of hostility and animosity towards the one we were made for. And we find ourselves still faced with the inescapable, unavoidable reality in a fallen world that we are on a trajectory that lands and leads to death. And so, the penalty, the punishment, we're kind of asking, what is the penalty in the biblical story? We're in it. Like, it's distance from God, and it's a trajectory that will lead towards death. And ultimately, at the cross, this is what Christ is taking upon himself and bearing. That Jesus steps in at the cross and bears our exile. He bears our distance from the life-giving presence of his Father. And he bears our death. Uh, so some people will... I'm like, well, Jesus wasn't punished on the cross. Like, he, you know, he just died. Uh, or you know, he, Jesus wasn't punished on the cross. I'm like, well, did he die? You know, like, yeah, if he died, that is seen, you know, like before the sovereign face of God, that is seen as him bearing the punishment. It's the fact that he was exiled, cast out of the city, and in distance took our death upon himself. Why did he have to do this? Well, the early church, there was a uh, phrase they used that I love. It was, uh, the unassumed is the unhealed. And what was meant by that was uh, the unassumed, as much of our condition is separated from the life-giving presence of God, it remains broken and unhealed. So if Jesus had taken on a soul but no body, the idea would be he could heal our soul but not our body. If Jesus had taken on a body but no suffering, then 
He could maybe touch us in a perfect state, but he couldn't reach into the depths of our brokenness. But Jesus not only takes on a soul, takes on a body, but he takes on our suffering. He assumes upon himself the full weight of our condition, ultimately to our corrupted condition, dead in the grave, in order that he can bring the life-giving presence and power of his healing to restore us back. The unassumed is the unhealed, so Jesus assumes the fullness of our condition to himself in order that he can heal it through union with himself. And it is on the cross and in the grave that God the Father is most intimately binding God the Son in union with us in our condition in order to raise us with him. All right, so what is the penalty? We've seen this exile, death, Jesus is doing that. Um, the next related question we should ask is probably, uh, is substitution fair? <laughs> I love bacon, you know, and I don't know, if I, go to, if I go to a breakfast joint, if I were at breakfast this morning and I ordered, you know, bacon and eggs, whatever, and they brought me this instead, no, no diss on if you're vegan or vegetarian, it's fine, but I, I would feel disappointed. I'd be like... This is not a fair substitution. I wanted this, and you gave me this instead, right? And I think similarly sometimes, uh, there's, a, there, there's probably a healthy critique of sometimes the way we talk about substitution at the cross. Mm. One critique, for example, would be sometimes it's said as if, you know, you've got um, a guilty person in the courtroom, and the judge is like, you're guilty, you're worthy of this punishment, you're worthy of death. Uh, but then someone innocent steps up and says, hey, you know what, I'll take that punishment in their place. And the judge says, okay, I'm going to call you innocent, and then I'm going to punish this innocent person instead. And we have Nobody in their right mind in any courtroom in the country would ever do that, right? Because if they did, we'd actually say that was unjust. If someone was convicted and guilty of rape and murder, and we said, hey, actually, um, this person's willing to go to jail for you instead. We'll just release you back out on the streets. Like, we would be appalled and offended at that vision of justice. It's like, well, what good did that do? That didn't actually um, protect the public from keeping someone dangerous, maybe, at, at bay. It didn't bring any relief to the family whose people, you know, whose family members were raped or killed. Or, you know, it, it doesn't actually seem to be accomplishing anything. And so some people wrestle with, like, is it actually fair that Jesus dies in our place? Is substitution fair? <clears throat> well, I think one of the, uh, we'd never allow that kind of image, that image, that would be seen as unjust. But I think if we're going to understand it in kind of a healthy, historic, uh, the way it was historically understood, something to recognize it was understood in more a context of um, what we call Jesus's corporate identification with us, our corporate identity. Here's what I mean by that. Um, Often we hear the word corporate today and we think of like Walmart or Starbucks or McDonald's or, you know, kind of a big international corporation. Uh, but the root of the word historically has to do with like uh, of a social body. The word corporate, because the same word is like corporal, the idea of a social body. Um, so in the ancient world, uh, like the society was seen as a body and the king or the pharaoh or the, you know, Caesar was the head of that body. And the head kind of determines which way the body moves, similar to how leaders would determine which way the social body would move. And the picture here is that Jesus is becoming the new head of humanity, the new captain of creation, by identifying with us as humanity as a whole. Right? And so 
One of the ways I like to think about this is uh, Jesus is a CEO, right? A Wall Street CEO. Or I don't know what the equivalent here would be. Uh, the financial district or something in, uh, oh, Queen Street. Is that it? I think I looked at it. It's Queen Street? <laughs> well, okay. So, um, <laughs> so Jesus is a Wall Street CEO, which is not the way we usually tend to think about him today, right? Like we tend to today more emphasize kind of revolutionary, subversive themes. He's uh, with the marginalized and the outskirts. Uh, but there's also a scene of Jesus' authority, that he is actually being installed. God the Father is installing his son as the new head of Humanity, Inc., right? Jesus is being installed as the new captain of creation, the head of humanity. And as our head, Jesus identifies with us. He's bound in union with us as his body. And this is why he can bear our punishment. So let's say, for example, um, in the global financial crisis back in what, 2007, the, uh, you know, in, I'm an American, we're guilty, right, of... <laughs> It's corrupt housing practices, lending practices, mortgage, the mortgage, uh, the shoddy mortgage loans and all that, right? Um, and in the aftermath of that, Bank of America, uh, I, bank I used back home, uh, we were found guilty, Bank of America was found guilty of $17 billion in damages, right? It was found guilty of $17 billion in damages. And um, what if Bank of America just said, well, that was under the old CEO. We fired him. We brought on a new CEO. And so now we should just be acquitted, you know? No, you owe $17 million. No, 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 that was under the old guy. Now we have a new guy in charge, right? Like, you wouldn't, you, that wouldn't fly. That wouldn't work, right? Because there's actually a corporate debt. Like, there is a debt that the body has, the social body, the company has as a whole that it's accountable to. Um, if, Things work that way. You can't just replace the CEO and the debt goes away, right? Like if you were to go, uh, man, next time if, if BP had an oil spill, they wouldn't have to have any responsibility. They just kind of fire the old guy, put in someone, put in uh, someone new, a new new head, a woman, a man, someone to lead the company and go. We're not responsible for the debt anymore. And we go, no, um, there is a responsibility that the social body has as a whole for the destruction that they've unleashed. And similarly. I think God can't just go, well, that was under Adam. Now Jesus is in charge. The debt just goes away. It's like, no, Jesus is assuming an identification with the body of humanity and the debt of the damage that we've inflicted into each other and into God's good world. Just because Jesus is the new head of humanity doesn't mean the old debt goes away. It just means that Jesus is now bearing responsibility for the debt and the weight that his body has unleashed into the world. So Jesus identifies with us. Um, I think it's not so much that Jesus is being punished instead of humanity, so much as humanity is being punished in Jesus, that he is bearing the punishment, the weight, the debt that we have brought and inflicted into God's good world. Sometimes the question comes, well, why can't God just forgive? Like, just let bygones be bygones. That happened back then. Let's just pretend it never happened and move on. Um, but I would say that the reality is someone always eats the cost. Right? Like when there's sin, when there's injustice, when there's problems in the world, somebody always eats the cost. Uh, so I heard, um, I think it was Tim Keller, someone used an analogy years ago, but it was something like, uh, here's my version of the analogy. Let's say your neighbor comes home just wasted, trash, plastered some night, right? Two in the morning, and they drive their car 
like through your lawn, like smash through your fence, knock out one of your trees. The car goes into the front living room, like just kind of smashes through your wall and you wake up and come out and there's like a car in your living room, right? And your neighbor kind of stumbled out the door and went home and fell asleep, right? Well, the next day, let's say you go over and let's say you decide, I'm going to just forgive my neighbor what happened. That's fine, but forgiveness doesn't mean that the debt goes away, right? Like, it doesn't mean that suddenly, magically, the car leaves your living room and your wall goes back and the tree goes back and the fence sort of magically comes back together. Uh, forgiving them doesn't mean that the cost goes away. Forgiving them means that you agree to bear the cost yourself. Right? Forgiving your neighbor means that I'm actually going to pay the cost to restore the house. And I would say that that is exactly what is happening at the cross. God is just forgiving. He is justly forgiving. God is eating the cost in Christ of the weight that we have unleashed of destruction into his good world. To go back to the housing crisis analogy, one of the big debates or dilemmas that we had in the States at the time was um, that the government forgave the banks. Right? And a lot of people were really upset. This is kind of a bigger social level of going, uh, well, let's forgive the banks, but that didn't mean the debt just went away. Forgiving the banks meant that we as the government and the people were going to have to eat the cost as a society as a whole. And that was where a lot of people were upset, going like, don't forgive the banks because we don't want to bear the cost for what they did. Right? Since the cost doesn't go away, uh, the one who forgives is taking the responsibility for it upon themselves. I believe that uh, this is helpful understanding what's happening at the cross, that Jesus is bearing our exile and death, that through his redemptive humanity, he has taken upon himself the destruction that we've unleashed in the world. And I think it could be helpful to look at the cross as not only a crucifixion, but also the cross as decapitation. Right? And here's what I mean. What is happening at the cross from one angle is that humanity is chopping off its own head. God has installed Jesus as the new head of humanity. Right? And here, Rome, Israel is sort of casting out the new mayor. Like Rome is uh, it's the empire of Adam, ousting the lord of the nations. And it's us, Humanity Inc., lifting our creator up on a cross, and us as the crew throwing the captain overboard the cross is a picture of humanity chopping off its own rightful head. And yet, ironically, from another angle, the cross is also a recapitation. Like what we are doing at the cross is attempting to decapitate, like to remove the rightful head of humanity. And yet what God is doing at the cross is a recapitation. It is as Christ goes through the cross into the grave that God the Father is most intimately binding Jesus in union with us in our condition. That God is actually uniting Christ, his son, with us as humanity in the fullness of our exiled and dead condition in the grave. In order that, fully bound in union with him, we might be raised with him to new life on the other side. At the cross and in the grave, God is binding his son most intimately in union with us as his body. So when I think of the cross, one uh, image that comes to mind is uh, the image of a mugger and a physician, right? So uh, if you think of like a, um, <clears throat> let's say a mugger and physician can both cut you, right? 
they can both perform the same action and slice open your body with their knife, right? Both are doing the same action and yet both are doing it for profoundly different reasons. The mugger is doing it to tear you down and to take from you and get, while the physician is doing it in order to heal you. And I would suggest that at the cross, that uh, in the very same event and the action of the slicing, so to speak, of Christ, like the crucifixion of Christ, um, God and humanity are both at work in the same event, yet in ver from very different motives and postures. Like we are the muggers seeking to tear down Christ and pull from, extract to get what we want. And God is yet sovereignly and almost ironically involved in the very same event at work as the great physician binding his son most fully in union with us in order for ultimately for our healing. <clears throat> we read in 2 Corinthians 15 that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, that God is actually at work in the cross, not just distant, not just um, watching massively, that there is this reality that God is actually sovereignly up to something in the event of the crucifixion, and it's actually the love of God reconciling the world to himself as the Father through the Son and the Spirit takes our tragedy and trauma, our sickness, our suffering, our death, our rebellion, our shame, and bears it himself in the vicarious humanity of Christ in order to raise us with him from the grave. Well, I have some other stuff we could go into, but I think that's actually, that, that went a bit. It'd be cool to discuss now. So let's kind of do the same from earlier. Uh, let's spend a little time just discussing with someone around you. Uh, what stood out? Is there anything? Uh, just to recap, first half was trying to look at the life of Jesus. The best way, I think, to understand the life of Jesus is to see that he is reliving the story of Israel, the story of Adam, the story of us, only he's living it successfully where we failed. Second half was going, as we see that climax in the cross, what's happening at the cross is Jesus is actually doing a lot of things, but one of them is he's bearing uh, the weight of the exile, our exile and death, in order to raise us in union with him into life with God forever. So take some time to discuss what hit you most.